Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me is Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's going great. How are you, Natalie? Good. You know, second week of arguments. I feel like we're rolling along. Justice Kavanaugh was back, so it was a full bench at the court this week. Um, also, big news this week, uh, Justice Thomas Tomorrow, we're recording on, on Thursday, so tomorrow on Friday, uh, he will be celebrating 30 years on the bench. 30 years on the bench. So I actually just looked this up like two seconds ago, but do you know what was uh, leading the charts of the top Billboard uh, songs in October of 1991 when Clarence Thomas first joined the Supreme Court? I most certainly do not. So do you want to share? <laughs> Mark, Marky Mark in the Funky Bunch. That just oh, goes my to goodness. show how long he has been sitting on the Supreme Court. So, you know, Mark Wahlberg obviously has had a complete career change since then. Justice yeah, Thomas, like not, a, so, not so much. hamburger chain, right? Something like that, yeah. Well, Justice Thomas, look, I, I feel like his, his, you know, approach on the bench has certainly changed. Just look at this, this term. I mean, in last term, we're hearing so much more from him. This is true. This is true. In his, in you know, entering into his fourth decade now on the bench, he seems to really be finding his voice. He's asking the first question and all these oral arguments. So maybe this is the best decade yet. Um, so <laughs> big, big ups to Justice Thomas for that. I, I hope his colleagues get him a cake or something in, in celebration of 30 years on the bench. But uh, we got a lot more to talk about. Uh, sometime today, as we record on Thursday, we're expecting a new highly anticipated report from President Joe Biden's 36-member Supreme Court Commission on possible reforms to the institution. Yeah, this is going to be just the initial report from a commission that President Joe Biden put together um, to look at certain reforms for the court. Um, you know, obviously, there's been some high-profile calls to, you know, quote unquote, pack the bench at more justices. But that's just one um, possible reform that the commission's looking at. Um, you know, there's some more moderate reforms being considered, like putting term limits on the justices. Uh, so this should be actually, I, I think, uh, a major topic of discussion tomorrow when the commission has a public meeting. And separately, the justices themselves are going to be meeting, but not about this report. They're actually going to be talking about um, all the cases and motions and applications on their weekly conference. So potentially we could see some new cases taken up tomorrow or on Monday when the court releases orders after their conference. Um, but, you know, obviously we'll be keeping an eye on that. That's right. And, you know, as we said, it was uh, an argument week uh, for the justices. They're actually just wrapped up their our argument sessions for October. So they have a few down weeks, uh, but they kind of have been packing it in. You know, it was a short week because of uh, the Monday holiday and they, they, they managed uh, four arguments this week. And we're going to focus on one of those cases this week that was argued on Wednesday. The case is called United States versus Sarnayev, otherwise known as the Boston bomber case. On April 15, 2013, Jokart Sarnayev and his older brother Tamerlan set off two pressure cooker bombs near the finish line of the Boston Marathon, killing three people, including an eight-year-old boy, and injuring more than 260 others. The nation was gripped by horrific images of the attack and the ensuing manhunt for the brothers, who killed a Massachusetts Institute of Technology police officer while on the run from law enforcement. The older brother, Tamerlan, was killed in a shootout with police. Jokar was sentenced to death by a federal jury in 2015 for his role in the killings, but last year, that sentence was overturned by the First Circuit, which found he didn't receive a fair trial. On Wednesday, the Department of Justice argued its appeal to the Supreme Court in the hopes of reinstating Jokart Sarnayev's death sentence. 
To help us understand this complicated case better, we have on Law 360's senior Boston courts reporter, Chris Villani. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks for having me. So you've been following this one for quite some time since it was actually coming up through the appeals uh, pipeline in the First Circuit. So before we jump into Wednesday's arguments at the Supreme Court, let's kind of set the table here. Why did the First Circuit overturn Jokart Tsarnaev's death sentence? Well, the biggest issue going all the way back to the district court trial was venue. There was a legitimate question, and it was the subject of a mandamus uh, appeal to the First Circuit in 2015 as to whether this trial would actually take place in Boston. And there were similar arguments to what was made after the Oklahoma City bombing and Timothy McVeigh's trial and moving that to Colorado. There was talk about moving it to New York City, maybe Washington, D.C., um, even Springfield, Massachusetts, to the federal court out there, just to get it maybe a little bit removed from um, where it happened, because this was thought of as an attack, not just on the people who were directly impacted, who were killed or injured, but on a Boston institution and indeed on the city itself. Ultimately, the First Circuit decided it was not a unanimous decision, but decided this trial can happen in Boston, but... The vetting of jurors, the voir dire, has to be thorough. It has to meet the standards of the First Circuit for high-profile cases. And the biggest issue that the First Circuit harped on in oral arguments in this case was the fact that the government really objected to drilling down as to what jurors might have seen in terms of coverage, what stood out to them, and also drilling down into their social media and what at least two jurors of the 12 had social media posts that related to uh, Zarnayev. One retweeted a, a tweet calling him a piece of garbage. Another had tweeted about being in lockdown during the manhunt when they were trying to find um, Johar Zarnayev after, uh, and Tamerlan Zarnayev after uh, they were identified as suspects. So this was something that needed to be done in order to satisfy the First Circuit. You can have the trial in Boston, but you have to follow this process. The First Circuit found that they didn't. The evidentiary issues, which really, and I'm sure we'll get to it, were uh, the crux of what the conservative branch of the Supreme Court wanted to talk about. That's always felt like a secondary issue. Uh, the First Circuit, I think, was really focused on venue, jury selection, and did Sarnayev get a fair jury? Was the jury selection up to the high standard uh, set in the late 60s in the First Circuit? And uh, the panel found that it was not. And at least one of the judges, the late Juan Torreya, he always said this trial should never have taken place in Boston. He thought that in 2015. He thought it again in 2020. Um, so that's been the question. Venue and then jury selection has really been the, the biggest issue that the circuit court has been focused on. You did mention that secondary issue, though, um, regarding evidence. Can, can, you, can you just explain a little bit of what was um, what the First Circuit also held when it came to important mitigating evidence during the penalty phase of the trial? Yeah, I, I don't know if we can call it the, the secondary issue anymore, right? It seemed to be a primary issue for the Supreme Court. Um, but the, the crux of, of Jokar Sarnayev's defense, he admitted, his lawyer admitted in opening statements, he did it. There, there was no um, uh, claim of innocence here. But the crux of the defense, both in the actual trial and at the penalty phase, was that Tamerlan, the older brother, was the dominant one. He was the jihadist. He was the one who uh, really pulled his brother into uh, these actions and this horrific crime. And part of the evidence that the defense argued showed that was 
evidence that Tamerlan Tsarnaev was involved in a gruesome triple homicide completely unrelated to the Boston bombings uh, that took place in Waltham, Massachusetts in 2011. So this evidence did not come before the jury. And the argument has been that it should have, because this is, uh, as uh, Ginger Anders put it yesterday, Zarnayev's lawyer, this is sort of the case when it comes to establishing that Tamerlan was a uh, someone who was bent on jihad, who was incredibly violent. These were gruesome murders, and he was a, a domineering presence. It's not to say that Jokar Sarnayev is innocent, but that, they argue, is a powerful mitigating factor when it comes to assessing whether he deserves the death penalty. It's evidence that in the course of a regular trial never would come in because it's it's hearsay even a couple times removed, but it's a much lower standard when it comes to mitigating evidence. And they argue, and the First Circuit held, that it's evidence that should have come before uh, the jury in this case to try to assess whether Tamerlan Tsarnaev was the one who was pulling the strings here. Right. And there are shades of the, the DC sniper case when obviously Lee Malvo got a, got a life sentence after I think the jury found that he had been under the influence of of the older assailant in in that uh, uh, famous crime. So let's just go to Wednesday and let me ask you how the DOJ made its case to the Supreme Court to reinstate the death sentence. Well, I think the DOJ really focused on, and, and I thought that Eric Fain did a good job kind of summarizing this in his rebuttal, um, that any error here was harmless because look at the evidence the jury did here. And the facts of this case, uh, which are, are largely not in dispute, are horrific. Uh, Jokar Sarnayev is on video placing a backpack behind a group of children, deliberately and somewhat casually walking away. Seconds later, there's an explosion, um, the blast killing uh, eight-year-old Martin Richard. And following that was involved in the cold-blooded murder of Officer Sean Collier at MIT, trying to, to unsuccessfully, but trying to steal his gun. Then a car chagging. He lobbed uh, pipe bombs at police during a, a violent shootout in Watertown, Massachusetts, just a, a couple of days later. These are horrific facts. So part of the argument there is that the jury heard powerful evidence that would lead them to this same conclusion, even but for these quote unquote errors, these alleged errors uh, by Judge George O'Toole in the initial trial. Another part of it, and this focuses more on the triple homicide evidence, and I think this is what the conservative um, wing of the Supreme Court was really harping on. This is somewhat unreliable hearsay evidence. It's an affidavit from uh, an alleged co-conspirator in that triple homicide who is now also dead, who had every reason uh, at that point to lie and, and point the finger at the Boston bomber who was deceased at the time he wrote the affidavit. So it, it's not really reliable evidence. And given all of the powerful evidence that is undisputed, uncontroverted, we know what he did, the jury would have arrived at the same conclusion. Did the court seem receptive to those arguments? Well, like anything with the Supreme Court, it was split, right? So I, I do think the stronger argument from Zarnayev's perspective was the media exposure, the pretrial publicity, and, and the effect on jury selection. I think really the entire liberal wing um, was, it, it really sounded a lot to me actually like the First Circuit arguments where there was sort of this, this question of, you have this guy, he's clearly guilty, and 
as the DOJ, you, you tried to cut corners here. It seemed like you wanted to uh, go out of your way to exclude questions for the jurors that seemed pers- perfectly reasonable. I, I think the liberal wing of the jury of the uh, Supreme Court rather was uh, receptive to that. I also thought Justice Barrett had some interesting comments, uh, and Justice Thomas asked about this as well. Should the Supreme Court be in the business of? reversing uh, circuit rules of this kind and in sort of a threshold question when it comes to reviewing uh, what's called the Patriarcha standard here in the First Circuit that was, again, was established in 1968. Is this something that the court should really be delving into? I think the arguments about the evidence really did not sway uh, the conservative majority, I, I think a number of the justices were pretty clear that they thought, one, the evidence was unreliable, the the affidavit. And I, I think there's also a sense going to the DOJ's argument that even with that mitigating evidence, even with that mitigating factor, there was also a lot of powerful evidence that led the jury to ultimately uh, uh, decide a verdict of death in this case. So I, I would have to I mean, Jimmy can can uh, speak to this as well as anybody. Sometimes it's difficult to to try to handicap these things. But if I'm a betting person, I would say uh, that this death sentence is probably going to be reinstated. Obviously, uh, I would say a split decision, but it was a, a tough one to read because they were sort of all over the place in how they received the arguments. But I don't think the uh, evidence when it comes to or the argument when it comes to the mitigating evidence was one that landed uh, all that well with the Supreme Court. Right, right. Your story had an interesting quote from Chief Justice Roberts that we have lined up here that we can play in which he's kind of asking um, Ginger Anders, an attorney for Tsarnaev, about what that would even look like um, to have, you know, a potential introduction of evidence about an unrelated triple homicide at the penalty phase of a trial. It would focus debate on something that the district court determined really just couldn't be resolved. There were no witnesses uh, available. They were both dead. Um, And uh, he concluded that that would require, uh, I don't know if he used the term or not, but a mini-trial, certainly a, 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 a detour, into something that at the end of the day there was no basis for resolving. It isn't a question of you know, who do you believe? It's a, they're both dead, uh, and, and uh, they're not there. And, and you, the determination is whether that, uh, qu- whether that was an abuse of discretion. Right. And, and that's just one — that's the perspective of, of Chief Justice Roberts and potentially some of the other conservative justices. But the liberal justices came at this question of the uh, mitigating evidence and the exclusion of the mitigating evidence quite differently. And, and here's another clip from Justice Elena Kagan responding — um, to an assertion from the the Deputy Solicitor General Eric Fagan on behalf of the government, saying that adding this evidence wouldn't have added much. I mean, think Which about was, what you're just saying, Mr. Fagan. This court let in evidence about Tamerlane poking somebody in the chest. This court let in evidence about Tamerlane shouting at people. This court let in evidence about Tamerlane assaulting a former student, a, a, a fellow student, all because that showed what kind of person Tamerlane was and what kind of influence he might have had over his brother. And yet this court kept out evidence that Tamerlane led a, a, a crime that, com- that resulted in three murders? So it seems like we could kind of have a, a bit of a split ruling here, um, even, uh, even going to these two separate questions where the justices fall. And it, it's, it's, like you say, it's probably going to be pretty hard to, to predict exactly where 
they come out on both of those things. But can we just take a, a step back for a second? And I want to mention something that Justice Amy Coney Barrett uh, brought up at oral arguments, which is that the Biden administration has called for a moratorium on federal executions in the first place. So here you have the DOJ fighting to reinstate this death sentence when they have no immediate plans to execute him. So just can you just talk about back up for a bit and talk about, you know, where we are and what are the stakes of this case if the government really doesn't have any intention of executing him? Yeah. And I thought uh, Eric Fagan's answer to that was was interesting. The beginning part of his answer sort of went to this is going to take a while before it ever would come to fruition anyway. So uh, and then he came back to we want this jury verdict to be respected. He had a fair trial and 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 that sort of a thing. But look, we don't know what the next administration is going to do. We don't know when the next administration is going to come in. I think that's kind of what Eric Fagan was saying here. Uh, and they may have, as was the case between the last administration and this one, a very different view um, of the death penalty. So what the end game is here for the DOJ, I'm not sure. I, I think there are a lot of folks, particularly um, those who are maybe more left-leaning, maybe those who are uh, more likely Biden voters who wonder what the DOJ is doing here and and feeling that it's a waste of resources. I can tell you that here in Boston, it's very split. And if they do have another uh, death penalty trial, if the First Circuit verdict is is upheld by the Supreme Court and they have to do this all over again, I, I think the mood here would be very different. I, I think they would um, find a, with years removed from it, with some of the rawness, some of the pain, uh, I, I won't say completely gone. It never will be. But uh, at least some of those uh, scars may be scabbed over uh, just a bit. They would find people a little bit more split on this question. Even the, the, the survivors themselves and the victims' families have been split over whether Zarnayev deserves the death penalty or whether he should get the death penalty uh, is maybe a better way to put it. I think there are some that would just as soon have him rot out in, in ADX Florence for the rest of his life and not make a martyr of him. Uh, and then there are others who who feel that death is what he deserves and, and what he should get. So uh, as for what the DOJ's endgame is, it's hard to say because it's unlikely that any sentence would be carried out in at least the first term of this administration. Um, but I think speaking just as somebody in Boston, there is a large swath of the population who would like this person, this story, uh, this case to just go away and focus on the event, the Boston Marathon, which coincidentally was held just a few days ago. It's normally in April, but because of the pandemic, it was held just uh, just three days ago as we speak now. Did and and kind of look forward. I did not. I did not. <laughs> I've, I've run two marathons, but never Boston. So um, who knows? Maybe, uh, maybe someday, but I'm getting closer to 40 now. So my window may be closing. <laughs> Certainly an important case to watch. Chris, thank you so much for coming on and talking us through this this case and, and some of the complicated matters that the Supreme Court is, is going to be wrangling with. Happy to. Anytime. Well, it was great chatting with Chris. It's a, it's a fascinating case. And I, I think that about does it for this week, Natalie. It was so good to talk to you. Likewise, Jimmy. Looking forward to, to seeing uh, what happens at the court next week. We'd like to thank our producer, Stephen Schrader, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Special guest, Chris Villani. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. And for more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 and the term. Thanks for listening.